Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. If you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful for each one of you, uh, for the venue service meeting right down the hall, and also for... Uh, Reach Church DeSoto, grateful for each and every one of you. I want us just to pray a little bit this morning before we get started. We're entering into the Easter season. I'm excited about all that we've got going on uh, beginning next week, weekend with Palm Sunday, and then through Passion Week, we'll have services right here in this room uh, Monday through Thursday, around 1210 we'll start. We'll just look at the final week of Jesus' life, and then that'll culminate Friday evening at 7 p.m. And I really want to encourage you, make every effort to be here for the Good Friday service. I've often said this, one of my favorite services of the entire year is we contemplate the sacrificial death of our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, and we'll partake of communion. You cannot fully appreciate the joy of the resurrection on Sunday until you've contemplated the death on Friday. So you need to be here Friday night, 7 p.m., be an hour-long service. We're even anticipating very large crowds, so we're going to have a venue service. Uh, live worship in the venue, the, the message will be live-streamed into that room, just like we do on Sunday morning. We'll partake of communion together. If you can be here, plan to do so. But this season, we all have some people in our life. I, I, I hope and pray this is our heart throughout the year, but we have people in our life, especially as we come to Easter, who may not know the Lord. Um, we're, we're concerned about their, their spiritual life and where they stand in, in terms of the Lord. And, and so maybe there's a son or a daughter that's on your heart right now, maybe a mom or a dad, a, a coworker, a neighbor. You're not sure where they stand in relationship to Christ. And, and, and uh, I just want us to pray because we know salvation is God's work and we want to pray that God will open up lives and hearts to the message of the gospel this, this Easter season like never before. So we're just going to pause on the front end. I'm going to kneel here at the front, however you feel comfortable doing so. If you want to come to the altar, you want to kneel out there, you want to sit right where you're at. It's not about your physical posture. It's about the attitude of your heart. Uh, but, but we need to pray. Uh, Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. We're just going to pray this morning. If you want to, however you want to do that this morning, I'm just going to kneel right here and lead us in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning and we begin to contemplate Easter and all the events surrounding. Uh, the resurrection, we're mindful of all that you have done for us. The giving of your son, Jesus, the giving up of your glory to come and die for us. And it, and it causes us to want to do so much more for you. Uh, not in an effort to repay you for what you've done, but because our hearts love you. And we want to worship you. And we want other people to know the love that we have for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work and move in the hearts of those who are our friends, our, our relatives, our coworkers, those around us who may not know Christ. And God, I pray this Easter season you would soften their hearts to the message of the gospel. We know salvation is all your work. It is not something we think our way into. It's something that you open our eyes to. And we pray that you would open the eyes of the blind. Scripture says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel in the glorious face of Christ. We pray today that you'd peel back blinders, that this Easter season we'd see a great movement of people towards you and towards the hope of Christ. We're praying for revival in our nation, that men and women will be drawn to you in a supernatural way for your glory. 
God, help us to be the agents of your, your great work, to be missionaries. God, to be bold for you. And Lord, we anticipate what you're going to do. We thank you for this and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I do want to encourage you again this Thursday. We'll meet in this room. Appreciate Pastor Bill filling in for me this past week. But uh, this Thursday, again, we'll have a, uh, a noon prayer service around 12, 15. It'll go till about uh, 1250 and get you back to work if you need to. If you're not able to be with us, I completely understand. But I want to encourage you, be in prayer. Set aside times just to pray, especially for those who don't know Christ. We come to uh, 1 Samuel 18 after J- uh, David has... Uh, achieved this incredible victory over Goliath. And, and we're gonna back up a little bit. I, I, I feel like I, I skimmed over the last portion of chapter 17 too quickly, and I think there's something there that God wants us to see, so we're gonna back up a little bit. But David has achieved this incredible victory over Goliath, and, and, and it's changed David's life forever. David will, will never be the same. There, there's no just going back as a shepherd to the flocks anymore. He's gonna be called into full-time service into King Saul. He will become the national hero of Israel and in many ways still the national hero of Israel to this day. So, so David's life has changed. He's now a marked man. He's, he's been prepared by God for this moment. He comes into this moment that God has created for. He comes into full bloom and he'll achieve this great victory. And then he's uh, asked uh, to come Come see Saul. We want to learn more about you. So let's pray together. Then we'll pick up in verse 53 of chapter 17. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us. God, we're so grateful that you have chosen in your great grace and sovereignty to reveal yourself to us. We'd have no way of knowing you if you had not revealed yourself, if you had not spoken. And we're so grateful that you've spoken through your written word and through the living word of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would speak to us today. We, we know that this is a sacred moment when we, as your people, gather around the truth and the fire of your word, and I pray that it would illumine our hearts. Those who don't know you, I pray that you would illumine their hearts to the depth of their sin and the beauty of your Messiah, your Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would leave here even more committed in loving loyalty to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, look with me, verse 53 of chapter 17. We're just gonna look at this briefly. It says, the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Now, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner said, by your life, O king, I don't know. The king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So David has achieved this incredible victory. He's coming back. We don't know exactly how all this works, and this is a bit dangerous for me because I like to picture these things in my mind. We have the word of God, and then I try to just picture it. How did this play itself out? Certainly, we know they fought for several days because they've chased the Philistines all the way out of the land, which wouldn't have been a short journey, but they've chased them out. Now they're coming back. 
Uh, David is probably incredibly exhausted. Uh, he, he's got the head of uh, Goliath with him. He puts his uh, utensils in his tent. He probably has a little bit of a pup tent that he set up as he came to visit his brothers and he drops off the weapons there. And I just kind of picture David, a very humble man, uh, a lot of guys probably patting him on the back, but he's probably thinking, I'm gonna head back to the, head back to the farm, go back and see those sheep. Kind of like to go back to obscurity into my old life. And very quickly, he realizes that's not gonna happen because Abner grabs him by the shoulder and says, you're coming with me. We're gonna go talk to the king. And so he comes before King Saul. He's there with Abner. And uh, I picture this, I don't know. I don't know if he had time to clean up. I, don't, I know he stopped off at the tent, but this is, this is just how I picture it in my mind. David is coming, he's got a little shepherd suit on, whatever that looked like, and he's got his gear on, and, and, and if you're eating lunch pretty soon, I'm sorry, but he's got the head of Goliath in his hand, you know, he's just holding it there, and he's got blood probably splattered all over his shepherd gear, and, and he's just kind of standing there, and, and, and King Saul, he don't have a grass stain on the uniform, he ain't done nothing. He just sit back and watch while his men washes as David led this great victory over the Philistines. And all of a sudden, he asks him, who are you? He's, he's questioning David as to his identity. And this creates a bit of a challenge. I, t- I mentioned it briefly last week. But the challenge is, we know that David has been serving King Saul already. He's been in the court. Um, when, when Saul's having a bad day, they get David to come in, pr- play the guitar. And it, you'll know if you've not been here, I use guitar instead of harp, all right? So that's what I do. So what I choose. But um, he's, they bring him in, play the guitar. When the king's having a bad day, kind of soothes the king's heart. So he's been in and out of the king's ho- court, but now all of a sudden he's asking, Who's, what, who is this guy? And, and the challenge is, shouldn't he already know him? Well, I think the answer is very, very simple. Certainly Saul knew who David was. He knew that there was this young guy who comes in when I'm having a bad day and he plays and he helps me out. But remember, King Saul had a lot of people coming in and out of his court. Had a, probably had a lot of servants who served him throughout the day. He knows about David, knows him vaguely as this young man, but he doesn't know anything about him. He doesn't know his background, doesn't know his family, doesn't know where he comes from. And quite frankly, he probably didn't care. Uh, as King Saul, we see this repeatedly in his life. He's not a man who sees people as people to bless and serve. He sees people as a commodity. He uses people. We all know this. There's leaders who bless and serve, and there's leaders who use. King Saul was a leader who used people. And so he had no real concern about this guy who comes in and out of my court and plays the guitar every now and then. I don't care. But now, all of a sudden, after he's achieved this great victory, now I do care. Why? Because he's made a promise, hadn't he, that whoever kills Goliath is going to get my daughter. And so he's going to be sitting at Thanksgiving dinner table, and I need to know who this guy is. He's about to marry into the family, and I want to know his background. I want to know where he come from. And uh, I think he's not only thinking about it from a marriage standpoint with his daughter, but I think he's thinking about it from a political standpoint. You remember kings in this day lived in constant fear of somebody assassinating them, somebody raising up some kind of mutiny against their leadership. And, and David now has become a national hero. Uh, he's got a lot of influence in this nation. Just suddenly, he's went from obscurity to sudden, suddenly a national hero, and I'm, I'm bringing him into my house. This is a dangerous thing. I need to know who this guy is. And so now he's asking. He, he's got to know a little more information. And so he's asking David, who are you? And it's very important that we see this. This is the part that I really wanted you to see because it should just jump out in our minds. But he asks him, who are you? And he says, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. 
And as we read that, it ought to immediately stick out in our minds. As we read this, I think the one thing that God wants us to see as we move throughout the narrative, the one thing that God wants us to see is that God is raising up his anointed king. Now, Saul doesn't know this. I don't, at least I don't think he does. So all Saul knows is Samuel has told him what? There's not gonna be a dynasty. Uh, he's giving your kingdom to somebody else. But Saul, I don't think, has any way of knowing that David has already been anointed by Samuel to be the replacement. He's gonna be the king. Saul doesn't know that, but we do. And I think as the readers, God wants us to see throughout this narrative that he is raising up his anointed. Anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, meaning Messiah. He is raising up his Mashiach, his Messiah. He's raising up his guy, his anointed king. And his anointed king is who? Is an unknown little shepherd boy from a obscure little town called Bethlehem. And immediately, we should think of another, a greater Messiah, a greater king, who is a good shepherd, who is a mighty warrior, who conquers the enemy, and he's from a little town called Bethlehem. This is the beauty of God's word. This to me, these are those moments in God's word where you, you kind of push back from the table and say, God, you're an awesome God. Thousands of years before Christ would enter the stage, God is already creating a door frame in the Old Testament that points us to only one person who can be the Messiah and his name is King Jesus. The further you go in the Old Testament, the further you go, it's why it's important that we know our Old Testament, the further you go, God just kind of narrows the door frame until there's only one person. When it comes to Messiah, God doesn't want us to have any doubts. He wants us to know. So he just continues to narrow the door frame until there's only one person who can go through it, which is King Jesus. Old Testament law and prophets create a crosshairs that point us to one person, King Jesus. Good Friday, we'll look at Isaiah 53, the suffering servant uh, who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The suffering servant is Messiah. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. So we had to stop. We had to see that. All right, now let's look on into chapter 18. In chapter 18, and remember, chapter breaks are added much later. So it's not like there's some lengthy break between the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of 18. I think this is just one continual event. So in chapter 18, it says, it, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. So he's gonna be pulled into full-time service. King Saul's gonna say, I need to keep my eye on this guy. Now, I'm not sure about him. I wanna keep him close, and he's a pretty good commander. He's a pretty good military guy, so I think I want him on my team. But I want you to look back at verse one, because there's an event that happens here, and we're gonna stop. It's interesting, we've been covering very long passages, and I even told Pastor Chuck this week, because he had to preach last night for me, and, and initially, because I, I kinda of tried to do the chapter outlines very early, and uh, when I went to look at this week, I thought, why did I only do six verses? And uh, isn't it funny? I forget what I decided to do a month ago. Sometimes I forget what I decided to do an hour ago. But uh, 
I'm like, why did I just do six verses here? Because it all kind of works together. But then it kind of rang a bell when I started to look at the text a little clearer because there's something here. Oftentimes when we come to these passages, we have a tendency because we know them. We've read these things so many times. I think there's significant moments that God wants us to slow down and, and be astonished by what occurs. And this, this is a shocking moment. This is a hermeneutical landmark. This is one of those portions of God's word where you gotta stop and say, why is this happening? And what is God trying to teach us? So Jonathan is overhearing this conversation. Jonathan has watched David achieve this great victory. He's seen this little shepherd boy, doesn't know who he is. Jonathan as well. He, he, maybe he knows what Samuel has told his dad about there's not gonna be a dynasty, the kingdom's gonna be taken away from you. But he certainly doesn't know about uh, David's uh, anointing. Doesn't know that David's gonna be king. But he sees, this, he sees this young man step out in incredible faith against all odds. And something begins to, to, to well up inside of Jonathan. Something just begins to warm his heart towards this young man. Uh, I think in David, he sees another man who truly believes in God. Not just says he believes in God, but he sees a man who believes in God and then acts on that faith. Because you remember earlier in the narrative in chapter 14, it was Jonathan, you remember, in the presence of his daddy who wouldn't move, who wouldn't move forward. And we'll see this continually. Saul was not a believer. And you're wondering, is anybody a man of faith out there? And Jonathan, you remember, with his little armor bearer, steps out onto the field of battle in a great act of faith. And you remember, he's the one who says... God is not restrained to save by many or few. He might as well just said the battle belongs to the Lord, just like David had said. Jonathan knew what it meant to be a man of faith, to trust in God, to have faith in God, and to act on that faith even when it doesn't make sense, to lay your life on the line, to do what God has commanded you to do. And he sees another man who acts in the same way he sees another believer and his heart is just warmed towards David. Here's a guy with a kindred spirit who has a common faith, a common belief. And it says their souls were knit together, meaning there was a deep camaraderie. I think the only way I was trying to figure out a way to illustrate this and it hit me kind of as I was watching a military movie. Um, I think because I've seen this. You've seen um, military men, men who have served on the battlefield, men who, have, who really know what it means to sacrifice, to put their life on the line to protect the freedoms of their country. And then they, they meet another military man, and they may not even have served in the same war, but they need, meet another military man who also knows what it means to be in the heat of battle and to put their life on the line, who understands the full weight and measure of the sacrifice that's involved in protecting our freedoms. And those two men, it doesn't matter if they served in different wars, but if they both understand the experiences that they've endured, there's an immediate camaraderie. Uh, when we do our 4th of July celebration, it's one of the neat things I see. Men who have served in very difficult places, in very difficult wars, They'll see, even beyond generations, they see another man who has served in that kind of way, and their heart just warms to them. 
One of my favorite moments is to see young military men. We'll ask our military men and women to come to the front and a young guy will help an older guy down and they'll lock arms and you see tears rolling down both their eyes because both of them understand a level of faith and commitment and sacrifice that nobody else understands. I think that's what Jonathan feels towards David. When it says that their souls were knit together, he says, I know what it means to have that kind of faith. I know what it means to step out and put your life on the line for the good of this nation and for the glory of God. And I love this guy. In fact, that's what it says. He says he loved him. He loved him as he loved himself. And we have to remove this idea of love from some kind of romanticized or sexualized context in fact, this word that is used there, it's, it's going to be used again. The exact word in, in 1 Kings chapter 5 when it talks about Hiram, king of Tyre, who it says he always loved David and he gives gifts to David, incredible gifts, because he just had a love, a deep affection for David. And it's the love that expresses an admiration, an incredible amount of respect. So Jonathan, man, he just looks at David and he sees another fellow believer, a kindred spirit, a kindred heart of faith that acts on it. And he loves him. And it will, it will motivate him, this love will motivate him to do something that is incredibly strange. Incredibly weird, totally abnormal, against any natural action of the flesh. And we'll, we, if we're not careful, we just skip over it. Look with me. Look with me at verse three. It says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. In verse four, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, don't miss this. We, read, we, we glance right over this. We've read this story so many times. Think about what's occurring right here. Now, when we think about Jonathan, oftentimes we think about Jonathan and David being peers. And as I studied this, there's, there's a little discrepancy because there's some difficulty on dating and timing. But the common consensus is that, that Jonathan was at least 10 years older than David and could have been as much as 30 years older than David. So I don't know about you, but really prior to this study, I always thought it David and Jonathan kind of peers, about the same age. They're not. You've got David, a young man who's probably no more than 18 years old. And you, you've got Jonathan, who's at least 28, and probably more than likely, I would say that Jonathan is at least in his mid-30s. So you have an elder man looking at a very young man. And in that culture, the elder always, the elder status was, was significant. You respected your elders. You looked up to them. So, so Jonathan is the elder. Not only is he the elder, but he's the prince. He is the rightful heir to the throne. Um, he gets all the inheritance. That's the way monarchies work. You just pass it down, Queen Elizabeth, King Charles, he'll eventually go to Prince William. It just goes down the line. He's the next in line. Now he, maybe in the back of his mind, he realizes the word that Samuel had said to Saul that there's probably not gonna be a dynasty. 
But there was probably still some level of hope in his life that I'm going to be king or I'm going to have this enormous wealth and it's, it's all going to come to me. So the, the picture here is that Jonathan has the upper hand in every way. He's older, David's young. He's prince, David's a shepherd boy. Not only a shepherd boy, he's the youngest of his family. He's a nobody. He's from Hicksville, Oklahoma. He's a nobody. And suddenly, Jonathan's heart is so moved towards David that he enters into a covenant. Now, don't think of this. I, I don't think this was as, sim as simple as just a little handshake. Hey, we're in agreement. Let me give you some stuff. No, I, I, this is just the way I picture it. I picture this as a spontaneous event in public view. He enters into a covenant. Now, what immediately came to my mind, you'll remember when we were in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And when you made a covenant, we studied that when we were in Genesis. When you made a covenant, what you did is you take an animal and you cut the animal in two and you pass between the animal. And what you're saying is, I'm, I'm committing loyalty to you. And if I don't keep my end of the agreement, let happen to me what just happened to this animal. So it's serious. It's binding. It, it's legal. You remember with uh, the beauty of the, the, the covenant that God made with Abraham is Abraham didn't pass through. God passed through alone. Telling him that this covenant is not based on you, Abraham. It's based on me and my faithfulness. Salvation is always all my work. You just rest in my salvation. But here, Jonathan, in a formal public way, displays to everybody around, all my allegiances do this man. The older, the, 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 the prince, and he says, all, all my allegiances do that guy. So he enters into a covenant, kind of a formal display of commitment and loyalty and allegiance, and then he does something that's even more strange. Guess what he does? He starts taking off his royal robe. Now this, if anybody's watching this, your royal robe was a symbol of your authority and your right to the throne, that you're the next in line. He starts taking off his robe. I think everybody around is saying, did y'all just see him cut that animal in two? Now, now he's taking... Now he's taking off his robe. Now, the, the, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about this and him taking off his robe and his armor and giving it to him, the first thing that comes to my mind is the incarnation of Christ. That was the first thing as I read this because it, it's really reminiscent of in John chapter 13. You remember when the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest and Jesus enters the room and it says that he took off his seamless robe. His seamless robe was a picture of his divinity uh, he, that he is God, that he's perfect, seamless, without sin, perfect. He takes off his divinity, his form of God. He wraps it around on his, his waist. He gets down on his knees and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And it's kind of narrated to us in, his, in a way that it says he's, he's taking off his rope. He's putting it around his waist. He's getting on his knees. It's like 30, the 20, the 10. He's getting close. Is he really doing this? And Jesus gets down on his feet. He humbles himself, the greater to the lesser, and he washes their feet. And it's a picture of his incarnation, his love demonstrated towards us as he comes to this earth and he dies at the cross for our sins. And certainly that picture is there. But to me, the more I began to study this, 
You see David enter into a covenant with Jonathan and you see David in humility take off his robe, take off his armor and give all that he has. This is all of his life. This is all his glory. He's saying, listen, don't, don't diminish this. He's saying, I'm not the rightful king, you are. I give it all up. This is unheard of. Can you imagine Prince William going to some common British guy who serves in the military and says, man, you're such a great guy. I'm, I'm gonna give it all up to you and I'll just become a commoner and then you'll be king. It'd be ridiculous. That would never be done. That's in essence what Jonathan is doing here and even more so. He's saying, I'm dying. I'm not, I, I, you, you, you're the rightful king. I'm giving all of my life away and you, my allegiance is to you. I'm totally committed to you. And here's what hit me. Not only is it a picture of the incarnation of Christ, but even I think more beautifully, it's a picture of our response to King Jesus. That's what this is a picture of. Because when Jonathan bends the knee to David, when he takes off his robe, when he gives up his stuff, when he enters into that covenant, he's not humbling himself because uh, he is becoming David's savior. He's doing that because he sees David as God's anointed. Now, remember, Jonathan has no way of knowing that David is God's anointed king. So how in the world, how in the world does Jonathan come to the understanding that this is God's anointed? One simple explanation. The sovereignty of God and the power of the Holy Spirit reveals it to him. And quite frankly, isn't that how all of us came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as our savior? It was not something that we thought our way into. Well, be, I'm gonna set out, I'm gonna study this. And it doesn't mean that some of us don't study and we don't look into things. But it's not something we think our way into. It's not something we earn. It's just something that we're walking along a life and sometimes God comes to us and he peels back the blinders and suddenly we see Jesus as king. And we see him as king and what's our reaction? We just lay it all down. We put everything out in front of him. We die to ourselves and say, you're king, not me. Your Lord, I'm going your way. I'm totally committed to you. All of my allegiance is to you. You know, when you think about this, Jonathan, David was a greater threat to Jonathan than he was to Saul. I mean, Saul's pretty much to be told, well, you're not gonna be king, or there'll be no dynasty, but David is an incredible threat to Jonathan. And yet in this moment, in light of who he is, the threat just fades. And I thought in my mind, in so many ways, when people come to Jesus, Jesus presents himself sometimes and even primarily as a threat. I think one of the number one reasons why many people will not give their life to Christ is because Jesus presents himself to a threat against their own perceived control of their life. <laughs> they, and what's funny about that is they don't really have control anyway. It's perceived control because God is in control and he's maneuvering all the circumstances in the way that he wants to anyway, but they think they have control and they don't want to relinquish their perceived control and give their life to Jesus. But listen to me. When a person truly sees the glory of Jesus Christ as God's anointed king and savior, the only natural and logical response is to lay all of your life at his feet. In, as I read this, I couldn't help but see in John 12, 
when Mary and Martha and Lazarus are having dinner with Jesus in Bethany, and wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall in that meal? Lazarus has been brought back from the dead, literally. Mary, her life is saved, literally saved, because of this man, King Jesus, and they're sitting around a table. It's the week of Passion, we're gonna talk about it next week. They're sitting around a table, they're having a meal. Now, the disciples, they got some understanding of who Jesus is, but they really don't get it yet. They won't really get it until after the resurrection. They don't fully get it. But in that moment, you remember there, one, there is one person who gets it. And her name is Mary. And you remember in that moment, I truly believe in that moment, God, who knows that Jesus is about to die and the circumstances will be such that Jesus will not get a proper anointing before his death and God moves in the heart of a woman and opens her eyes to the reality of who Jesus is and Mary, it hits her. This guy is about to die for us. And she goes back and she gets her alabaster jar. It was all her glory, the most expensive thing. It was basically her retirement account. A woman's perfume in that day was a symbol of your, your significance, your glory, who you were. She goes and gets the alabaster jar. She breaks it and she anoints Jesus for burial. In, the, in God good, I'm gonna anoint my son and I'm gonna use this woman who I'm gonna illumine her mind to who Jesus is. And she anoints, she breaks the jar because she's not holding anything back. It's not like she's gonna save some of it. She gives all of her life at the feet of Jesus because she recognizes him as the king of all kings. Listen to me, when you get to a place where you understand who Jesus is, the victory that he's achieved and what he's done for you, the only logical response, it's Paul in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, your spiritual, your logical act of worship. And remember this, Jesus will never give, ask you to give more than he gave. What did Jesus give for you? He gave it all. He gave his life. And guess what ask, Jesus asks of us? Give it all. Some of you, you've got questions. I don't know about his royal lineage. I'm not sure about all this. Maybe you're still, there's something in your heart that says, I want to be king of my life. You cannot know the benefits of this savior until you surrender everything at his feet. He can't just be savior, he has to be Lord and King. And so they, they, Jonathan goes all in, and look at what happens, because it's gonna create a wedge. So David went out, verse five, so David went out wherever Saul sent him prospered, and Saul set him over men of the war, and it was pleasing in the, the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servant. Guess what's happening to David? He's a Psalm one man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates both day and night. He'll become like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. David is a man who loves God. He's faithful to God, and God will lift him up, and he'll make him a tree. In verse six, it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. There's this huge parade. The women sang as they played and said, Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've, they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have? but the kingdom. Do you wanna see what's happening here? We're gonna talk more about this next week. 
God's anointed king, King David, is going to put a wedge in this family. There's gonna be a wedge in this family on the basis of how they relate and they respond to God's anointed king. And in that way, you could say this. David does not bring peace. He divides. And listen to me. Today, Jesus said in Matthew 10, he said it in Luke chapter 12, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to divide. He even says, in this home, in this royal home, you're gonna have division between a father and a son. You remember what Jesus says? I came to divide father and son. See, we come to faith in Christ and we find unity, right? But as we give all of our allegiance to Christ and we live in a world that doesn't like him, Jesus becomes a dividing line. What Jesus said in Matthew 10, Luke 12, I think what David is presenting here, when it comes to King David, you can't sit on the fence. When it comes to King Jesus, you can't sit on the fence. Jonathan's gonna go all in. Is it gonna cost Jonathan? He'll become a marked man by his own daddy. We're gonna read on. Dad's gonna try to throw a spear at him and kill him. Why? Because he loves David. When we go all in with King Jesus, there's a world out there that's not gonna like us. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A lot of people ask, why don't we face persecution today? Now, it might just be God's grace on our lives, but listen to me, it also might be because nobody really knows who we are. It might be because we're trying to sit on the fence because we don't mind saying we love Jesus over here at church and in the home, but you put us out in the world with our coworkers and all of a sudden we get paralysis of the tongue and we don't wanna talk about Jesus. And what we're seeing here is you, there's no spiritual Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. You gotta pick a side. We saw this in Genesis. There's Seth and Lamech. There's two lines. They're the people who love God and are trusting in his Messiah and the people who hate him. There's no middle ground. My question to you today is where are you? Jesus is God's Messiah. He is the king of all kings. And there's no middle ground. What a powerful picture of what it means to love the king. There was a song that came to my mind. This don't always happen, y'all know. But a song in my heart this week. Pastor Bill, man, I, I put him on the spot. I, I have yet to find a song Bill doesn't know. Um, but this song is, his name is wonderful. This was the song that was on my heart. Now, it's actually written um, based on his name is wonderful, that messianic title given to Christ in Isaiah. So it's kind of a Christmas, but, but we sing it all the time. Listen to the words, and then we're gonna sing it together. His name is wonderful, his name is wonderful, his name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages, almighty God is he. And then what do we do? Bow down before him. Love and adore him. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. Y'all stand with me. Pastor Bill's going to lead us. Bill, you lead us in this song. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. 
Father, we thank you so much for the salvation you have provided in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that telegraphs who the Messiah is. We thank you for your word that is a story about Jesus. God, I pray there's some people here, they may know about Jesus. but they don't really know him. Maybe they've been reluctant to really release control. They may use a lot of other excuses, but at the end of the day, they're not ready to cease being the Lord of their own life. They think they know better than you. God, I pray that you would peel back the blinders. It says, your word says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. God, peel back those blinders today supernaturally by your spirit so that they can see King Jesus. Just like Jonathan was able to discern by your spirit your rightful King David, I pray today they would see by your spirit your rightful King, King Jesus. And I pray today in light of who he is, in light of what he's done, they would lay their life down and they would submit to Jesus as King and Lord. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that in light of what we see here, we would be bold for you in a dark world that is opposed to you. I pray that we'd have the heart of Paul when he said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. May we demonstrate to the world in our lives, in our actions, and in our words that Jesus is king. And we love him. And we're following him because he alone bestows life. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.